Hello there, it's me, Michelle Cordens, and this month, as I'm sure many growers know, is a very busy time. The season's running ahead of average, growth is forging ahead, and here in Nova Scotia, we're in the midst of bloom. As I was driving to a farm this month, I listened to our very first episode from 2019 about fire blight. And folks, this episode is just oozing with information. So I've decided to release this episode to revisit my conversation with Dr. George Sundin. Not only is it our most popular episode, but it's also timely. For us here, we're still in the bloom risk period, and for others, it's always a good time for a refresher on trauma blight. A storm just blew through here a few days ago and brought isolated hail to orchards that ripped leaves and triggered trauma concerns. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sundin. He has since won the IFTA Outstanding Researcher Award in 2020 for his excellent work. And don't worry, I'll be back in June with a brand new episode. Happy growing season. Hi, Dr. Sundin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So I just want to start off the conversation today uh, by asking you to explain why open blossoms are so important to the fire blight disease cycle. Okay, so the, the critical issue with flowers is the surface of the stigmas uh, on, on each flower serves like a petri dish for the fire blight bacteria. So the bacteria can grow to really high populations on these stigmas, and that's what provides the inoculum for infection of flowers. So we think it takes probably 10,000 to a million or more cells to cause disease on a flower, and those populations can easily be achieved uh, if we've got temperatures, say, uh, decently warm temperatures uh, that enable growth. And we've been tracking, uh, we've been doing field experiments with the pathogen, inoculating flowers and tracking their growth. And under really conducive uh, temperatures, say temperatures in the 70s or 80s Fahrenheit, uh, the bacteria will divide almost as fast as they do under optimal conditions in culture. So they're growing just about as well uh, as we can get them to grow in the lab uh, on, on these flowers. And so that's what the problem is for fire blight. You can start with small numbers of bacteria that get dispersed into flowers. Then you can have this huge burst of growth, and then the bacteria can get moved around uh, by bees or by wind and rain. And then all of a sudden, the entire orchard is colonized with uh, high levels of bacteria, and then disease can happen as a result of that. So the stigma is like an incubator. It's these really good growing conditions for that bacteria? Right. So stigmas, what they do is they, they've got these papillae cells, which, which when we look under the microscope, they look like balloons. And then underneath them, there's just a surface. And the cells leach out nutrients and the bacteria just utilize them, and then they're kind of protected uh, underneath these balloon cells. Maybe they're, they're a little bit more protected from natural conditions. They get these leach nutrients, and they go to town. So this year, we actually had a lot of late bloom on young trees. Uh, because they were planted so late, we had a really cool and wet spring. So uh, a lot of growers uh, wanted to pinch flowers off those young trees in order to reduce the fire blight risk. So when do you recommend that they should start doing this pinching? Okay, so uh, 
Flowers can be removed. Generally, we'd like a dry, sunny day would be the best kind of conditions for flower removal. Because of what I just said about growth on flowers, you want to, it would be best to remove them before they open because once they open, the bacteria can colonize them rather quickly. And, and so those are the main considerations, I think. That if it's a dry day, there's less chance of transfer of, of any kind of populations around. It should be done as soon as possible as well. Okay, so they can get the greatest benefit with sort of the least risk of wounding because they're doing it on a dry, sunny day, um, and, right. and so they lower that risk of spreading the bacteria. Right. So uh, in Nova Scotia, we used the Mary Blight model, and uh, this year throughout Bloom, it predicted a lot of infections and a lot of high-risk periods. So growers actually wanted to stop applying protection as soon as possible because they had been doing it for so long already. So my question is, when are those flowers no longer at risk of a blossom blight infection? Okay, so what we found with flowers is, uh, and, and others have found this as well, is that the longer they're open, the less conducive they are for growth of the pathogen. And so a flower that's been open just for the first day it's open is optimal. Uh, bacteria can grow like crazy on them. But if we wait until say five days after a flower's been open, the Irwinia bacteria, the pathogen, if we inoculate it on, doesn't really grow. Now that could be because that stigma habitat is degraded. Uh, it could also be because there's uh, non-pathogenic competitors that are providing a sort of biocontrol there, whatever. Uh, the older the flower gets, the less conducive it is to being, uh, to enable growth. Now it can still be infected, because bacteria could be blown in by wind and rain and can still infect that flower, even though it's, it's, the stigmas are not a good habitat for growth. As we get towards petal fall, we actually can, can detect large populations of the pathogen in flowers still. Now these pathogen bacteria, they may not cause disease on the flowers, but I think in our Human regions, say from the Midwest to the U.S. on east, those bacteria can still, they'll survive for a while, and they can still spread to cause shoot infections, uh, which are equally, can be equally as devastating. But the reality is, I guess, as you're in the petal fall, we're not as concerned about flower infection. Uh, we're, we're moving on to shoot infection, and if you've put on growth regulators such as perhexidione calcium, the grower should be in really good shape for protecting from shoot infection. So I'd say as we get into petal fall, sprays typically can be terminated. We'd like to put on at least one at petal fall, especially if you've had a, a year like this where there have been a lot of Mary Blight high infection periods. You still want to keep that protection going in kind of that interim period between where we're worried about blossom infection and shoot infection. Okay, so they should be careful about not stopping too soon, but once we get into petal fall, we know the risk is getting a little lower. Right. I mean, fire blight is not forgiving, so if a spray is missed and it's a year for fire blight, that can be the difference between an epidemic and successful control. And so that's the key. The key, I always like to err on the side of 
putting on an additional application, a more conservative approach, just because I know how devastating fire blight can be if, if, if protection wasn't there and the bacteria conditions were, were optimal for the bacteria to continue to, to grow and infect. Mm-hmm. So I'm also thinking about a misconception that Irwinia is washed away by rainfall. Um, what's actually the case with Irwinia in water? Yeah, it's not like we're thinking about a chemical that's just going to be uh, washed off the flower, perhaps. The bacteria, a couple of things can happen. One, they do require rainfall to help them swim from the tips of the stigmas down to the base of the flower where they infect. Now, if we get quite a bit of rain, they don't even have to swim. That'll just splash them right into the the base of the flower where they'll infect. I'm sure there's some bacteria that get washed away, but bacteria are also quite, uh, you know, they, they really, there's not much weight there. So in general, when bacteria get wet on a, a flower or on a leaf, or when it doesn't survive on leaves, but there's been work on other bacteria, bacterial pathogens on leaves. I think of it more like you're releasing a cloud of cells that uh, is not going to just go right to the ground. It will kind of move and can colonize new new flowers, new sites on the tree. So in a sense, rain is, is one of the mechanisms that the pathogen uses to move. It, it splashes them. It, it can drive them into the flower, but it can also splash them and let them move between flowers, between trees, etc. So that's why the Mary Blight model doesn't reset after a rainfall, um, because there's actually still a lot of that bacteria around. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So trauma blight uh, also fits into the fire blight disease cycle. Uh, in the past, in Nova Scotia, we've had hail and high winds that have led to fire blight outbreaks. So could you explain how a trauma event leads to fire blight infections? The key, <clears throat> one of the key aspects about bacterial plant pathogens is they need to have a natural opening in the host in order to infect. And that can be a natural opening like there is in the flower in the nectaries where they can penetrate in, or say on shoot tips, it has to be through a wound. Now, every shoot tip has microscopic wounds on it that we can't see. And so that's how you can sometimes see shoot infection occurring. The bacteria somehow get disseminated to a shoot tip, maybe just by a light rain event. And there's microscopic wounds where they can get in to the leaves there and cause an infection. A lot of times in Michigan, for example, if orchards are located by gravel roads or by situations where sand can blow into the trees and cause wounds, you can see more fire blight infection along the roads where the sand is blown in because that's causing wounds that allow the pathogen to get in, more wounds than would exist normally. Okay, so in a trauma event, that's what's happening. You're having a combination of things happening. So hail, for example, is going to cause large wounds that are going to let access for the pathogen. Or even in a high wind situation, uh, whatever kinds of particles blowing through the air may cause wounds to leaves or the leaves may get tattered. And then there's uh, lots of openings there that the bacteria can get in. So that's the first aspect of the trauma situation is just the heavy uh, wounding of the trees. And then the second aspect is 
uh, the winds that are moving the bacteria around. So the bacterial populations are so high that there's there's just so much present, and then uh, the, the act of the wind is going to blow them into these wounds, and they're just going to be ready to infect. And that's how uh, we can go from a situation where we don't really have fire blight, but if there's some small level of inoculum, and especially bacterial ooze, then a storm can uh, blow that up and boom, a week later we've got fire blight everywhere. That's because it doesn't take a lot of cells to infect a shoot tip, maybe as few as a thousand, uh, and an ooze droplet, one ooze droplet, can hold a billion cells. So that means one ooze droplet has enough cells to infect a million shoots. So enough, all the shoots in the orchard from one news droplet. And I think basically that's what happened in Nova Scotia uh, when uh, that tropical storm came through several years ago. There was a little bit of fire blade around, some ooze, and then the storm conditions just disseminated so much bacteria. There's wounding. Everything was optimal for infection. And the result is just that's significant damage and that's how powerful fire blight can be uh, and that's why we really have to do the best we can to reduce infection reduce the formation of ooze and that will protect us through the season exactly so that was post-tropical storm arthur it hit in early july of 2014 and yes growers have been uh, dealing with fire blight ever since and um uh, even like secondary infections from other pathogens as well. So uh, it's definitely been a challenge, and I can understand how a little bit of ooze can go very far. Right, and I mean, we deal with that. In Michigan, there's hail. Hailstorms occur somewhere in the apple-growing regions every year and multiple times in some years, and so it's a real uh, scary situation, and especially because we really lack uh, materials that we can use following hail damage, especially because with streptomycin, that is something that can be used, but we have streptomycin resistance in the pathogen in, the, in a lot of parts of the state. So those kinds of storms are, uh, we fear every year because we know they're going to happen. And the question is just where, where they're going to happen. And, and the best that uh, growers can do is just keep, keep the orchards as clean as possible. Uh, and, and that's your best chance for survival. I have seen many in orchard that went through a hail situation and came out with no uh, infection, no you know downstream infection because the orchard uh, was kept clean uh, and, and so they were able to, to withstand that. Um, but that's, yeah, it's, it's a real issue. Wow. So you did mention that streptomycin could be used after a trauma event and I imagine that's because it's partially systemic? Right. So that's the key of why streptomycin is, is effective uh, because it's partially taken up by the plant. I mean, we can see that uh, if streptomycin is overused, it causes injury to the plant, which you can see as a, as a yellow, like a, a fluorescent yellow-looking band around the edges of leaves. So what that means is that it's partially taken up by the plant. It's not distributed through the plant, but it's partially taken up by those leaves that shoot tips it's partially taken up by flowers. And so if the Erwinia pathogen population has already penetrated into the plant, the streptomycin can still be taken up and be effective 
in killing those cells, and, and so that's critical. We don't get that kind of effect from copper. We don't get that from casuthomycin, and so that's the big advantage of uh, streptomycin for for fire blades. So in a, in a trauma situation, I think uh, the streptomycin has to go on within 12 hours uh, to get the, the best result. If you wait longer, a lot of times the bacteria is penetrated too far or they build up populations that are too large to really uh, reduce to the amount that you need to reduce. You, you basically need to reduce those populations to zero to prevent infection. And that can only be done if you apply the streptomycin before the bacteria really get started growing inside the plant. In the first 12 hours after a storm, the bacteria have been introduced to the plant. They're basically still getting used to that new environment. They're not, they don't start growing. There's kind of a lag phase before they really start growing and causing disease. And that's the timing that uh, they have to be hit with so that the strep can go into the plant and get these cells before they really start building to numbers that are too large to to uh, control. Okay, that makes total sense. And so growers shouldn't obviously wait until after a blossom blight infection to treat? Well, we typically don't want to do that, And but in some situations, if you can't get in, in a, in a, a blossom situation, if you can't get in to the orchard beforehand, uh, it can be put on, say, within up to about 12 hours after a rain event, which led to a Mary Blight infection. Yes, it can be put on. I think you're limited in Canada to how many applications? Three? Yeah, three is our maximum. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, it almost makes a little bit of sense to kind of wait if you can. But in some cases, if you're waiting and the rain event continues and continues, then you're sunk because you've waited too long. And so that's kind of a problem situation, whereas if the strep was put on beforehand, it would help you with the bacteria that are arriving at the flower. It's a better policy to have the antibiotic in place on the flower before the event, and I think you get the most benefit from that. Okay. And streptomycin won't cure established infections? No, no, because when you have an established infection, the bacterial population gets really large like over a billion cells per gram of tissue. And in that kind of situation, when you're treating with streptomycin, all you can really get uh, from that is a knockback of about a 100 or a 1,000 fold. And so you're leaving a million cells still there that are going to continue to cause infection. Populations are too high. So say we do find an infection. Uh, why should growers remove fire blight strikes at least two to four feet below the visible symptoms? So, so when when you see an infection, like a shoot blight infection, for example, on a on a young shoot, the bacteria are moving inside the tree, inside that branch, uh, and they continue to move. And what they what they want to do is they want to move through the branches, find the central leader, and then they move down to the rootstock. So the, the bacteria, uh, and, and with the varieties we grow that are highly susceptible, like Gala, for example, bacteria are going to just move very easily through the host. And they're moving so fast that you don't even see the symptoms yet where they are. And so when we see the edge of the symptoms of a shoot blight infection, the bacteria are typically at least two feet ahead of that. 
uh, and, and then those symptoms will show up a day or two later. So they're moving, moving, moving far quicker than uh, how we can see from just symptoms alone. And so that's why we want uh, shoots pruned out two to four feet ahead of where, where you see the symptoms because the pathogen's moving so quickly. Now, with these young high-density trees, the key issue is you want to prevent the pathogen from getting to the central leader because in our mind, once the pathogen hits the central leader, then that tree is pretty much a goner. And, and in fact, in Michigan, we uh, suggest to growers that those trees should be pulled out. And I've seen, I was just in an orchard this year, last week, where there was an extensive fire blight outbreak last year, and we came back, and the grower in some cases had cut half the tree off, cut the tops of the tree off, but those trees this year were flagging, and they were going to die from fire blight in the rootstock because even with that kind of approach, the bacteria had gone past where uh, the grower pruned and the tree was a goner anyway. So uh, the big issue to me is once a pathogen hits the central leader, two things are going to happen. One is it can form a canker there, and which can ooze and provide more uh, inoculum for further shoot blight infections. Two, it can go to the root side and kill the tree anyway. So all the situations that can happen from that are bad. And so that's why uh, that's, that's the most important control in in these high-density situations is to keep the pathogen out of the central leader. Okay. And so just one last question. Uh, once a tree has been infected with fire blight, is it always infected, even if you cut it out and you don't see symptoms anymore? Right. That's a good question. It's not always infected. And, in fact, if, in general, the, the larger the diameter of the stem uh, that's infected, the better chance the bacteria can survive in there over winter. Uh, if you've got small shoots that were blighted, but uh, maybe it happened late in the season and there wasn't really much spread from that uh, down down the shoot, typically the bacteria does not survive the winter uh, in those. And so once a tree is infected, it's not necessarily always infected. And I would say this, this would uh, also depends on the the level of susceptibility of the, the cyan. So, for example, Honeycrisp, which is less susceptible to fire blight than Gala, so there's a better chance that uh, if you sustain some shoot blight in Honeycrisp, the bacteria is not going to spread as far, uh, and potentially the chances of overwintering are going to be lower, especially if, if it can be pruned out. So in that situation, a tree does not necessarily remain infected just because it was infected. But the more susceptible, then uh, the easier it is for the bacteria to, to not only move into the host further, but also to build up these really large populations. And it's kind of a numbers game. So the higher the population build up, the better chance there is for survival. Because one, if they do survive in the next season, there's going to be conditions that favor growth again. So even if, say, a million times, so this so bacteria had a billion cells in a tree and it got killed back to a million, so a huge killing because of the, the winter, uh, there's still a million in there that's going to have a great chance to grow the next season. And so I hope I wasn't being confusing there, but, but I do think that in less susceptibles, like Macintosh, for example, 
or Honeycrisp, infections can be cleaned up and the tree can can go on into the next season and, and be not infected. Uh, it's much harder to do with a Kalo. Okay, so that makes sense. But uh, they might not want to rely on it for, say, budwood collection. If they've got their own nursery, they should probably look at a block that was unaffected uh, just in case there is some oh, right, lingering right. bacteria. For sure. For sure. Uh, if, you're, if you're doing that for, for having your own nursery, you definitely want to stay away from situations where fire blade has been in that block for sure. Great. So they could probably do that by spray painting the trunk. There are some ideas I've heard. Um, maybe even avoiding the, the two adjacent trees to the infected tree just in case maybe insects have spread it further. Yeah, but uh, the bacteria can spread. And then Kerry Cox at Cornell did a study where they, they were looking at spread from a source and they would find the pathogen in buds, apparently healthy buds, several trees away. I can't remember how far away, but several rows away, uh, they were still able to detect the pathogen. So it can spread further than we think. Good to know. Well, thank you so much for your knowledge and your advice today. Uh, I hope your growing season's going well, and uh, thanks again for your time. Yes, again, thanks for having me. Good luck to all the growers in Nova Scotia, and, and hopefully you're having a good year in terms of no fire blight or, or keeping it under control and uh, but you have to be diligent especially now that it's it's so endemic I would say uh, you have to keep diligent to keep ahead of this disease. Thank you. Follow me on Twitter at NS Tree Fruit and follow Perennia on Facebook and Twitter at NS Perennia. Thanks to Perennia for kicking off the podcast with this fire blight episode. Thank you to Patty Ryan and Rachel Brown for taking the show and running with it. And of course, thanks to growers for their interest in the science of growing great fruit. Well, there you go. Aren't you glad you listened again? 